go ahead and uh, read our scripture for this morning. If you have your Bibles with you here or at home, uh, we will be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16 and be reading verses 1 through 8. I'll give you a moment to get there. And once again, that's Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Allow me to read the word of God this morning. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Good morning. Happy Easter to everyone. It's good to be with you. It's good to worship with you on this very special day. If you are visiting with us and we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. At Renewal, everything revolves around Christ's death and his resurrection. It's not simply the starting point for our faith, but as people who follow Christ, it's woven into every aspect of our lives. And so on Sunday mornings, we don't say to you simply, here's what it means to live a life that pleases God. Here's what you should do. There are things you should do, but we don't start with that. We don't end with that. Instead, we try to show that what Jesus did now has an impact for what you and I do. We try to show that what he has done shows now has has an impact on how we live our lives. That's the goal we have on Sunday morning. That's the same goal that we have in our community groups, in our children's ministry, our youth and college ministry. It's in the formal counseling that we do. Our hope is that it then flows out into our informal conversations with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors. Because Christ's death and resurrection, what we shorthand by often calling it the gospel, is not only how we enter into the Christian life, into a relationship with God, it's how now we live out the Christian life, how we become more godly, how we become more like God. It's what motivates us to live as a Christian, like someone who follows Christ, It's what empowers us to live like a Christian. It's what gives us the desire, the want to, to live as a Christian. And so hang around long enough, and you will hear about Jesus' death and resurrection constantly. Or at, at least you should. That's what we're striving for as a community and as individuals. The Easter season, however, is a special time of year. We're not simply going to look at an aspect of life through the lens of what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb. 
We're not going to look simply at the implications, but we're going to look directly at those elements. And so Friday night, we focused on his death on the cross and why that is so central for everything that he's done for us. Today, we focus on the resurrection itself and what that means for us. So for this morning, we're going to uh, consider three different things about the resurrection. First, that it is true, that it really happened. Second, that it can be terrifying when you experience it. And third, that it's just the beginning. So three things this morning, that the resurrection is true, that it can be terrifying, and that it's just the beginning. First, resurrection really happened. No one debates the fact that the tomb was empty, that when it was opened up, there was no body in it. Not even the early Jewish polemicists, the people who argued against the Christians, none of them disputed that the tomb was empty. No one questioned that reality. What people disputed both then and then down through the ages is why the tomb was empty. And there's been a number of different explanations offered to explain why there was no body there. Some have said that the disciples stole it, and then they made up a fictional story to explain why it was missing. Others have said that the Jewish authorities took it so that it wouldn't be venerated, so that it would not become a pilgrimage site. Others have tried to say, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of passed out on the cross and later revived and let himself out of the tomb. Now, those last two really make the least amount of sense. If you were with us Friday night during our scripture reading, you might remember hearing three different people who all certified that Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea took the body down from the cross and he prepared it for burial. He handled it before putting it in his tomb and sealing the tomb from the outside. Joseph was under no illusion that Jesus was anything but a corpse at that time. The Roman governor, Pilate, allowed him to do that because the centurion, this expert in death who oversaw the crucifixion, declared that, yes, Jesus was dead, that there was no life in him. Pilate, the legal authority who was responsible for protecting Rome's interests, was satisfied that that really was the case. Now, that's really important because, if you remember, Pilate kind of got backed into a corner. The Jewish leaders told him that if he let Jesus go, he was no friend of Rome, no friend of Caesar's, because, they said, anyone who claims to be a king opposed Caesar. So Pilate, who was not Jesus' friend, cannot afford to make a mistake here. He can't let this man still be alive. It's his career. It's probably his life that's on the line. There's no way Pilate would let anyone get away with a botched execution with that kind of threat hanging over his head. There was no life in Jesus' body when it was placed in the tomb. He, was, he could not have revived because he really was dead. And yet, you don't have to have been here Friday night to see that. You can understand that from this morning's passage. The women are concerned, verse 3, with how to roll away the stone. Three women did not think that their combined strength would have been enough to do it. So then ask yourself, if that's true for them, how could Jesus have done it? How could a man who everybody else thought was dead a man who had not been eating or drinking for days, how is he supposed to revive enough that he now has the strength to roll away a stone that three women combined could not? You realize this objection starts to feel like you're grasping at straws, just 
trying to invent a reason for why there was no body in the tomb. Or take the second argument, that the Jewish leaders had stolen the body. If that was the case, why didn't they produce it sooner? It's pretty clear that as Christianity spread throughout Israel that the leaders didn't like it. They tried to put an end to it. It's very clear that the resurrection was the heart of the message that was spreading. And so it would have been very easy to stop Christianity, to shut down this upstart faith, simply by producing a body and saying, look, we took it, here it is. They never did that. That really leaves only one objection, one explanation for why the body was missing other than the resurrection. And that is that his own disciples stole it. And then they created this elaborate fiction to cover up what they had done. That effectively they created a legend and that that legend took hold. Now, that theory raises a lot of questions. Like how did a made-up legend transform the disciples from a bunch of guys who all ran and hid while their leader was brutally murdered who were still hiding that first Easter Sunday morning, how did they go from being broken and terrified to courageous and unstoppable? A force that literally changed the world if the resurrection was merely fictional. How did they become guys who would not stop spreading the legend they made up, even though it got many of them murdered? You just think about that for a moment and you realize nobody dies for a fantasy that they invent. Certainly no group of guys is all going to die for that theory. That idea doesn't account for what happened. Or go back to the passage that Gentry read to us earlier and notice that it does not read like a legend. Legends are what? They're, they're, they're big, over the top, out of this world. You can think about Greek and Roman mythology here. If this was a legend, you would expect something a little more dramatic, bring it into the modern age, a little more cinematic. You'd expect a shining Jesus, right? Sort of light beams coming out of his eyes, striding triumphantly out of the tomb. You can hear the orchestra in the background. You don't expect just a single comment from a guy sitting down. He is risen. And then some mention that Jesus isn't here because he's off traveling to Galilee. The women don't even get to see him. This doesn't sound like something that you read in a legend. Or wouldn't you expect to see a dazzling angel, maybe floating in the tomb, or a disembodied voice, not a young man calmly hanging out, talking normally? This doesn't have that big, over-the-top, legendary feel. Or if you were creating this, would you just set the stone aside with no explanation for how that great big thing got there? Wouldn't you maybe actually have the stones start to roll away just as the women are walking up. None of what you read here is the stuff of legends. It's all so ordinary. But then the women's response is not what you expect of a legend either. They're alarmed, frightened. They're not triumphant, bursting into tears of joy, high-fiving each other, yelling, Yay, I knew he could do it! Verse 8, they fled from the tomb. They ran away. And Mark ends his book with this. It's a really weird ending. It's awkward. It's so odd that even some in the early church didn't like it. 
And so somebody tried to make up an ending to make it end better. There are a number of reasons. You may have seen that in your scripture. The number of reasons not to take that ending seriously based on how it's a later addition to the book, on how the vocabulary is so different from the rest of the book of Mark, on how it does read like a legend. But what does that do? That only argues for the authenticity of Mark's ending. It argues that he's really not making something up. He's simply reporting what actually happened. You would never make up a story that ends with the women, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, running away in fear. You'd only write that what? If it really happened this way. They are better than the men, however. The men don't even show up which raises another non-legend element that's also pretty weird. Jesus talked repeatedly, we saw that through the winter, talked repeatedly about having to be killed and rise again, and no one, not one of his close friends or future leaders of the church, no one thought, huh, it's the third day, Sunday morning. Let's go, let's go check out the tomb and see if on the off chance that what he said so clearly might actually have happened. No one did that. Which is also not the way you would write a legend. What would you write about? You would write about people being there bright and early, absolutely certain that he would rise. Or if you wanted to round things out, you might include people with less certainty, less faith, but who at least showed up out of curiosity. What you would not do is you would not write that all of Jesus' closest friends and associates had no faith whatsoever, including the women, who are not there because they believed the core message of Jesus' teaching, that he had to rise from the dead. Why are they there? They're there to take care of a body. They expect him to be exactly where they saw him laid earlier. You would not make up a story like this. And if you were writing in the first century, you certainly would not have had women be the first and only witnesses. Both Jewish and Gentile societies did not value testimony from women. They were treated as second-class citizens, as far as what they were said was concerned, citizens whose word could not be relied on. As an aside, this is actually an area where Christianity has had a major impact on society. Rebecca McLaughlin points this out in her book, Confronting Christianity. She takes you through a chapter there where she notices that Christianity flips the script on the marginalization of women, that their status was raised in the church, elevated alongside men as being of equal status before God, that Christians have played a leading role in championing women's rights from the early church to the present day. But that wasn't the case outside the church in the first century. Which is another one of those elements of the gospel that rings true. That those who are overlooked, marginalized, dismissed by the common wisdom of humanity are highly valued by God in his economy. That the last truly do become first. But again, if you wanted to create a fable, a legend, a myth. You wouldn't write it this way. This account doesn't read like one. Instead, it reads like something that actually happened, something that was reported in this way 
because it happened this way. And to make sure that you know Mark is writing what people saw and heard and did, he includes numerous names in this chapter and in chapter 15. In these last two chapters, he includes almost as many names outside of the disciples, outside of public figures. He includes almost as many names in these two chapters as he does in the previous 14 chapters. What's he doing there? New Testament scholar Richard Balkum has argued that citing specific names is one of those things that tells you you're reading a report, an eyewitness account, not a story. If you're going to make up names, you wouldn't just make them up in the last two chapters. You'd have been making them up in a linear fashion throughout the entire 16 chapters of the book. Balkum argues this is kind of like footnotes, citations for us. It's a way of checking out the veracity of what you're reading by giving you names that you can identify who people knew in the early church that you could go and talk to, and you could question, and you could hear from them what Mark has written for you. It was a way that you could verify the truth of what's written. In other words, this account doesn't read anything like a legend. It reads like something that people saw and experienced, a report of what they saw and experienced. So what's this mean? There's a missing body and several different explanations for why the body is missing, for why one was never produced. So what do you do? How do you decide what to believe 2,000 years later? To sort of pick one out at random that you like? No. You do what you do in every day of your own life. You believe the one that best accounts for the data. Because not all of those explanations, those beliefs about what happened to the body, and they are beliefs, they are all faith, if you like. Not all of those beliefs are equal. Some of those explanations don't account for the data that you have in front of you. They don't cover all the relevant facts. Now, what do you do when that happens in your life, either in your personal life or in your professional life? What do you do when you're trying to make sense of things in the larger world, but you can't? Because the way that you think things should be doesn't make sense of the way things actually are. What do you do then? Don't you start to change what you believe so that it's in line with the way things are? What do you do when you're conducting an experiment in a lab, writing a certain piece of code, designing a new part, analyzing sales data? What do you do when you keep getting results that are not what you expect? Don't you start to change what you expect, to change your belief about what you should expect? Or what do you do when your kids react in a certain way that surprises you? You thought they should have this certain reaction. You expected that, but they didn't. They reacted in this way. Don't you back up and say to yourself, I need to adjust what I'm thinking about how they're thinking, and I need to get my mind thinking along the lines of their minds. Because the way that I'm thinking they should be reacting clearly does not account for the what they are actually doing. Something else has to be going on. 
That's what you and I do every single day of our lives. When our ideas don't line up with reality, it's only reasonable to adjust the way that we're thinking. It would be foolish to have a certain belief about the world or about people who are close to us, to have it proved wrong over and over and over and over and over, but still hold tightly to it. It'd be foolish to say, it doesn't really matter that my ideas are out of line with reality. It doesn't matter that they don't work. I like them. So I'm just going to keep holding on to them. You don't do that. What do you do instead? You consider alternative explanations. Other ways of understanding the facts that you're presented with. That's only reasonable. It's the only approach that has any intellectual integrity. You need to do that here as well. If the resurrection is not true, you would be absolutely foolish to base any of your life on it. It's what Jesus said he would do. It was the heart of all he came to do and to teach. So if it did not really happen, then you can't trust anything else that he said either. You shouldn't trust anything else that he said. Frankly, you shouldn't be here this morning. But if it really did happen, then it changes everything. It changes your understanding, your perception of the world at the highest level. It changes where history is going. It changes what's happening in the universe. And it changes how you then approach the smallest, most minute detail of your life. You learn to see those details through the light of the resurrection, through the light of what Jesus has said is going to take place, and you then respond to those accordingly. Settle this question for yourself. Study it. Look into it. Read through. Make yourself think until you're sure one way or the other why, so that you can live well, so that you can live in the world that is with the way that the world is. Either reject the reason, the explanation offered here in Scripture, or embrace it. And in embracing it, embrace a whole new world that's only possible because of the resurrection. But be careful. Point two. Because the resurrection can be terrifying. Notice all the ways that the women are experiencing this new reality. Verse five, they're alarmed. Verse eight, they fled. They're trembling. They said nothing to anyone. Why? For they were afraid. This was not a happy experience. Not a joy-filled, so happy I could burst kind of experience. They've just heard that God has done something far beyond anything that they could begin to hope or imagine, and they're terrified. Which, if you've been reading through Mark, is a pretty normal response that people have when God breaks into their world. Jesus calmed a dangerous storm at sea in chapter 4. The disciples were more afraid afterward than they were before. He cast out a whole crowd of demons from one man who had been terrorizing a town in chapter 5. And when the people saw the man clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And they asked Jesus to leave. When Jesus takes three disciples with him up a mountain in chapter 9, some of his glory starts to shine through him. Peter starts talking nonsense. Why is that? 
we're told he did not know what to say because the disciples were so frightened. Throughout the book, when God breaks into people's lives, and people start to get a sense that this is not normal, that something supernatural just broke into their world, they often react with fear, with terror, even when God is doing good stuff. Makes you wonder, why is that? Why do they babble? Why do they ask Jesus to leave? Why do they ask God to leave? Why do they run away like the women do here? There is something about coming face to face with God, the real God, that is deeply unnerving. Something that lets you know how big you're not, how small you really are, how little you actually control. We just finished tax season. And there's that old adage about there being two certainties in life, death and taxes. But you realize that's kind of true, but there's a difference between the two. There are times when you can avoid taxes. You can scam the system. You can find a loophole. Sometimes you can avoid taxes. Death, never. Death is the certainty in life that is guaranteed for everyone. It's something that you are getting closer to with every breath, with every heartbeat, with every morning that you wake up and every night that you go to sleep. No one can avoid it. No one escapes it. Until now. Until Jesus rose from the dead. Here is someone who death cannot defeat. Someone who's even stronger than death. Someone who's clearly not merely human. You think, well, that sounds like a great thing, right? Here's God come among us, able to overthrow death. And yet this event inspires terror and fear. Why not joy? Well, maybe they were really surprised. It's got to be more than that. You can't imagine somebody saying, oh my goodness, we weren't expecting this, let's run away. Ever have someone throw you a surprise party? Yes, it's unexpected. It can put you on the spot. You feel a little awkward. It's clearly outside your control. But for most people, it doesn't fill you with fear. Why not? You know the people. You know their hearts for you. You know that they're working to do something nice for you, not something to hurt you. Why do people, throughout the book of Mark, fear when God shows up? when he breaks into their worlds in such a way that no ordinary human being could, with power that no being, human being has, in a way that announces God himself is here. You realize clearly they don't trust his heart for them. They don't believe that in that moment things are going to turn out well. Why might that be the case at the tomb? It's helpful here to put yourself into a Jewish mindset. The Jewish people were not expecting a resurrection that happens to an individual in the middle of history. They were expecting a general resurrection at the end of history, one that according to the prophet Daniel, chapter 12, would involve some rising to everlasting life, while others rose to shame and everlasting contempt. It's a resurrection that takes place simultaneously with the last judgment of God. So if you are a Jew and you see or hear of someone who has spontaneously come back from the dead, who's been raised up 
from the dead, what does that tell you? You're thinking the end is here. <laughs> it's here now, which means that what? Judgment is here now. And if judgment is here now, that means I'm about to be judged. That I'm about to be account for everything that I have ever done wrong, for everything right and for everything wrong, including all of the ways that I have failed to believe everything that God has said. In that moment for the women, including how he pro promised that he would rise from the dead. From that angle, it makes perfect sense why the women ran away scared. Why they said nothing to anyone about what they'd seen and heard. They haven't believed. They didn't believe that Jesus would do what he said he would. And now what? It's judgment time. If my logic is right, that would be absolutely terrifying. And yet the women did not stay terrified. They did say something to others. If they hadn't, we would never know that this happened 2,000 years ago. The fact that it's recorded for us tells us that they went out and they did tell other people what they saw, what they did, what they heard, what they experienced. Now, why did they do that? How did they go from abject fear to doing what Jesus wanted them to do, to obeying him? How did they go from terror to trust? It's because Jesus found one more way to convince them of his heart for them, to show them that he only had good intentions for them. That point three, the resurrection is not the end for them. It's just the beginning. Think about the women. They don't come to the tomb in faith to see Jesus alive. They come in doubt, disbelief. And it's a strong doubt. Their doubt is not in the process of coming to a conclusion. They're not confused about their doubt. They're not talking on the way about how maybe Jesus might possibly be alive. They're not confused. They've gone out and they've bought spices. They're ready to anoint a body. They're not actively wrestling with their doubt. Oh, I really wish it could be true that he was alive. I'm just really having trouble getting on board with that. They're not doing that. They're not confused and they're not actively wrestling with their doubt. For them, it's a settled thing. It's a done deal. It's an article of faith for them that Jesus is dead. They're here to anoint a dead body. They have no faith in what Jesus said about himself at all. Now, how does Jesus respond to them in their doubt? He broke into it. And he disrupted it. Just like he had broken into a lot of people's lives beforehand and disrupted them. He made sure that there was a way for them to see inside the tomb and to see that it was empty. He sent a messenger to them to explain what it was that they were seeing. Why is he doing that? Bring them up out of their doubt. He stooped to the level of their doubt. To where they were even though they should not have been there. He wasn't satisfied that before he died, he had already told them repeatedly that he would rise. I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise. He didn't say to himself, I, I've done everything I need to do. Now it's up to them to remember. It's up to them to figure it out. Instead, he takes into account that they couldn't believe, they wouldn't believe. And then he gave them what they needed 
in order to believe. He treated them well when they doubted. He showed them his heart. And in showing them his heart for them, he showed them how he would use his power, this power that overcomes death. He showed them that he would use it for them, not against them. But he didn't only treat them well, these ones who came to care for his body. He also treated his disciples well, who didn't come at all. They had all abandoned him on the night he was betrayed and arrested. They ran off, left him to face his enemies alone. They abandoned him, and he will not abandon them, not even now. And so he sends them a message when, <laughs> when they won't come to him. Verse 7, the women are told to go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. What's the messenger referring to? Earlier in the book, in chapter 14, Jesus had predicted that the disciples would all fall away, that they would abandon him that night. But he told them that their abandonment would not end their friendship with him. That verse 28, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He told them where they would be able to find them, where they would be able to connect with him again. And in telling them that, he's telling them that he wants to connect with them again. But they didn't go. He predicted that future. They then fell away, abandoned him, and they're still hanging around Jerusalem. They did not take seriously that he was still set on meeting them in Galilee. So in response to their present active disobedience to what he said, he took it on himself to tell them again because he wanted to be with them. Maybe more accurately, he wanted them to be with him, to be where he is, to stop hiding from the local authorities and come be with him. And not just a select few, a few who hadn't, you know, sinned too badly. He singles out Peter, tell his disciples and Peter, why does Peter get individual attention here? It's because Peter didn't simply abandon Jesus. He denied Jesus, denied knowing him, rejected Jesus outright. And Jesus says, tell Peter. Tell Peter that I'm going ahead of him to Galilee, and there I will see him, just as I told you. Why would you trust this God? This one who judges, who has all this power. Look at him. Look at how he treats people. Not how he treats them in ordinary circumstances. Look at how he treats them when he clearly has the upper hand. Look at what he does with his power, with all of his advantages. He takes all that he has and he treats people really well, not when they're at their best. When they are at their absolute worst, when they doubt him, abandon him, and reject him. Look at what he offers them. It's the very best thing he has to give. It's a relationship with himself. To come and see him, to be with him, to be friends with this one who is stronger than death. Do you see the point of the resurrection here? 
The resurrection is not about whether or not you know a certain historical fact. It's not even about whether or not you have the right interpretation of that fact. It's not something for you to get right or wrong so that you can pass a test somewhere. Instead, the resurrection is just the beginning. It's the starting point, not the end point. It's not an end in itself, but it's something that has instrumental value, something that is the means to a much greater end. Because it sets up the possibility of something incredible, that you and God could be lifelong friends, eternal friends, despite whatever you've done. And so the message that Jesus sent to the women is not, here are all the ways that you can know that everything I said is true. The message to the women is not, here's a course on gospel apologetics. The message is not, here's how to tell that the resurrection really happened so that they and you and me are not embarrassed when we tell our friends that yes, we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is about going to meet him. It's about being with him. It's about being drawn to this one who treats people so well. It's about wanting to be with him because he wants to be with you. And what you learn here is that he wants you. Even if you've doubted, abandoned him, or rejected him. You learn here one more time that what's most important with your, in your relationship with him is not how strong your commitment is to him. It's about how strong his commitment is to you. You learn that his is even stronger than death, that it outlasts death. You learn that on the other side of death, he still wants the people whose relational sins sent him to the cross sent him to death. He knew that his people had a problem. He knew that if he didn't do something about their problem, then the things they thought, the things they did, would always get in the way of relating with him, to him. And he didn't want that. So he unilaterally took their failings and their sins and their weaknesses off the table. He dealt with them once and for all at the cross so that nothing that they ever did past, present, future, could ever get in the way between him and them ever again. But he didn't do that just for them. It's for you and me as well. Watch how he relates to his first century friends at their worst moments. And you re realize that if he responds to them like that, if he really wants them to come be with him after all that they've done, then maybe he really means it when he says things to you and me like John chapter 6, verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. How do you know that's for you? How do you know that he'll treat you well? Come to him. It's that simple. Come to him, want him, and he promises not to drive you away. That's his promise, that he will take care of whatever might get in between you and him. Don't come to him because you want something else out of him. You want him to straighten out your life. You want to become a moral person, to be successful. 
have lots of friends and good friendships, come to him to be with him, period, full stop. Come to him because he's the end, not the means to any other end. Come to him because he alone can deal with all the things that you've done that would keep you from him. Your doubts, your inability to hang on to him when life gets hard, your turning your back on him, rejecting him, all those things that would keep you from him, he took care of by going to the cross and dying for you and then rising again so that you would no longer get in the way of being friends with him, so that you could not keep you from him. His desire for you took him to the cross but it did more. It survived the cross. He still wants you to be with him forever. He's done everything necessary to make that happen. See the empty tomb this morning, but don't stop there. Do what his friends did. Go on to meet him. Lord Jesus, you did not come so that we could have an intellectual conversation about you. You came that we might have life and have it more abundantly because we would have you. Lord Jesus, move our hearts, stir us to want you like we've never wanted anything before. Lord, some of us have known you for decades. We need to know you more. Lord, some of us have been on the outside of your church for a long time. We need to know you more. Some of us don't know you. And yet, Lord, there's something so attractive about you. I pray, Lord, that we would want to know you more. Lord, come and do that work inside of us today. Lord, draw us in such a way that we know that you'll never drive us away. And I pray this in Jesus' name.